Ecclesiastes chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. The preacher says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, giving a serving to seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything in the morning. sow your seed and in the evening do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Truly, the light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Two chapters. And guess what? Solomon has saved the best for last. The preacher has taken us on a journey about his inquiry into the meaning and the significance of life. And remember, that journey began with a statement at the very beginning of the book. All is vanity, empty or meaningless. There's nothing new, it says in chapter one, verses four through eleven. The preacher's quest for something lasting. In chapter 1, verses 12, and chapter 2 to verse 26, he asks and answers the question that at some point each and every one of us is, is going to ask, what is my life? What does it mean? What should I invest my time, talent, and treasure? What should be my interest? What should I look for? Wisdom, pleasure, wine, building? What does anything matter if nothing lasts, the preacher has spoken of the mystery of time in chapter three. The vanity and value of life, companionship of being overly righteous, of seeking power. But in these last two chapters, the preacher's attention is going to turn to the value of risk in verses one through six of chapter 11. The value of life. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 11, the enjoyment of youth in verses 9 and 10. In chapter 12, he's going to give a description of old age and the vanity or emptiness of most things. He ends our lesson with the value of wisdom or Proverbs in chapter 12, verse 11. The vanity of excessive study in chapter 12, verse 12. The importance of obeying God. And everything that he's revealed in verses 13 and 14. And so the preacher 
has made a careful inquiry and demands that the reader consider the best use of your life, the meaning of life, your capacity to enjoy or delight in your life. Because the capacity is going to fade. You're going to get older. But make no mistake about it, even though you're a little bit wrinkled, you're not ruined. That's the good news. That's the good news. So he says, worship the Lord in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Worship the Lord. Worship your creator before your capacity for pleasure fades away. He's going to say in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. And the preacher notes that our capacity for pleasure will begin to slip away. It'll begin to fade a little bit. And that pleasure will completely fade at death in chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. We are best served by using our capacity for wisdom to know God and the things of God and the communication of God. In other words, we're to use our capacity to know right from wrong and good from evil and to know the Lord in order to cultivate the virtue of discernment, knowing right from wrong and good from evil. And in the end, what is the meaning of life? In the end, what is the purpose of life? And for the preacher, the discovery he makes is it is our capacity to live our lives with a sense of self-examination before a God who is there and who is keeping a record of all that we say and do. Because in the end, nothing matters more than friendship and fellowship with our creator, the true and the living Lord. And so what we're going to do in these final two chapters is we're going to take a whirlwind tour. It's going to be like a roller coaster ride. You're going to go up, 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 and then you're going to come to the top and you're going to go down, 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 and, you're, and your stomach's still going to be at the top. When you were a kid, did you like roller coaster rides? Neither did I. Because what it did is it quantified my capacity to throw up. You know what? A roller coaster ride can be fun. It becomes less fun if you're on it over and over and over again. There will come a point in your life where you go, I'm ready to get off now. And the same is true of wickedness and sin. You're ready to get off. It's going to look like we're going to crash. But we're going to arrive safely. The book of Ecclesiastes has provided us with a study in pain and skepticism and cynicism. And the preacher in the last chapters has vomited the empty world of godless humanism over and over and over again. We've heard the phrase vanity of vanities, emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. And at the end of the journey, a strange and distant light begins to form on the horizon. Hope emerges. Doubts do- 
resolve. And suddenly we're told, remember, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And the preacher starts sounding like a preacher instead of a philosopher. He starts sounding like a preacher. And relief returns when the rebel is brought back to the pulpit in his book, Searching for Heaven on Earth. David Jeremiah presents a powerful outline, and I've adopted some of it with some slight modifications. It's just four points, if you will, for these final chapters. Your life is uncertain. Embrace it in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Your life is brief. Enjoy it in chapter 7 through chapter 12, verse 8. Your life is mysterious. Examine it in chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. Your, your life is obedience to God. So find a way to express it. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let's begin at the beginning. Your life is uncertain. So, hey, let's embrace it. Celebrate your life. Look at verse one. Cast your bread upon the waters for you're going to find it after many days. By the way, four times the times the preacher reminds us of what we don't know and what we cannot know. Um, you don't know what evil is going to be on the earth. You don't know which way the wind is going to blow. You don't know necessarily the complete works of God. You don't know what's going to prosper or not prosper. But there's a reason why some of you lock your doors when you leave. There's, some, there's a reason why some of you hit the panic button or the lock button on your car when you leave it in the parking lot. Because you know your heart, but you're not necessarily sure about anybody else's heart. So why do you lock your doors? Why won't you give your credit card and your social security number to complete strangers? Because there's something inside of you that knows that sometimes people will take advantage of you. But not everyone who appears to be well-meaning is in fact well-meaning. So when you read that verse, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. What do you think that means? Have you ever read that and go, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me help you. Solomon is the first king of Israel with a navy. King Solomon has built a fleet of ships. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, it says that he built a fleet of ships at Etzion, Geber, which is near Elat, or modern-day Elat. As a matter of fact, if you have a, a, a map in the back of your Bible, you'll notice that, that there's the Red Sea, and it comes to the point on the southernmost tip of where Israel is. The next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 10, speaks of these ships transporting gold and precious stones and expensive wood. And Solomon, in part, has grown wealthy from international trade. He has ships with gold and ivory and silver and apes and monkeys and lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. It doesn't say that part, though. But the main thing that they would transport was grain. And so 
The merchant ships were loaded with grain. The people of Israel were casting their grain on the water. But if an ill wind blew and sunk the ship, the grain would be lost. And so here, casting your bread on the waters has the idea of don't put all your wealth on one ship. Because if you put all of your wealth on one ship and a storm comes and sinks your ship, so goes your wealth. It's what your grandma used to say. Don't put all your eggs in the same basket. And you go, Granny, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you're out collecting the eggs and you drop the basket and they're all broke, breakfast is over with unless you want scrambled eggs, which sometimes we would have. And so this is the point. When you put your grain or your wheat on several ships and send them out on a staggered basis... The chances of losing everything becomes less and less. It's interesting. It's interesting what the preacher is doing. Your life is uncertain. Embrace it. But he also is giving you practical information. Diversify. That's what verse 2 means. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. In other words, here is what Solomon is saying. The wisest and richest man who ever lived said, diversify your investments. If the real estate market collapses, if the energy market collapses, if the government systems collapse, if the financial markets collapse, then guess what? You're ruined. They're going to be like everybody else. But if you put a little bit of your wealth in one place and in another place and in another place in six or seven or eight places, the chances of everything going to Hades in a handbasket is pretty slim. And so who would have guessed that here the preacher is giving us stock tips before you die? He says, make sure you're diversified. But then he also says, make sure you're diligent. Look at verse three. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. What he is basically doing is, hey, look, use common sense. If you see dark clouds on the horizon, chances are it's going to rain. They empty themselves upon the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Do you remember the old statement, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? And you know the answer, shut up. Of course it makes a sound. Sound isn't based on your presence or your absence. So... The preacher is basically making a point. Look at verse four. He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, he's not suggesting you can't be a weather forecaster, but in the ancient world in which he lived, you can't do two things. You can't be a weather forecaster and a farmer. You can't watch the news and make the news So he's basically saying, look, there's a certain measure of diligence in the real world in which we live. Do you want to be able to enjoy your life? Then you're going to have to work. In verse five, as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. I want you to understand what's happening. 
It could very well be that this wisest king and wisest preacher is walking through a wood. The tree falls. He plops down on the log and he begins to consider the mysteries all around him. Have you ever taken a walk or been by yourself and you begin to think about life's questions? He is the smartest person and the wisest person, but he doesn't know everything. He gets down and he hears the wind blowing. And what does he hear in the wind? It's the sound of children laughing. There's the laughter of children playing. And he begins to think, listen to that. Listen to those kids laughing. And then he begins to understand that he knows that husbands and wives have children. But even Solomon in all of his glory, remember, Jesus was talking in the New Testament when he's making reference to the lilies of the field. He says, not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. And Solomon in all of his wisdom didn't understand about an egg and a sperm uniting and chromosomes and how one part of the family donates 50% of the DNA and another part, the other 50%, and how the sick signature of an unborn baby is complete and intact. The moment that the egg and the sperm unite, you have a real human being. The only difference, of course, is time and nutrition. But does Solomon know, even in all of his wisdom, how God knits the bones inside of that fetus and how God places a spirit, a living spirit, an eternal spirit inside of the child? The world is a mystery. Life is a vapor. And Solomon has no clue how God does all of these things. And in verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. In other words, have a job, stick to the job, complete the job, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. It's his way of saying, don't focus simply on one task or even on one way of, of making a living. Guess what? Be open to the idea that God may have multiple ways for you to generate an income. The world is a mystery. Work hard. Live wise. Here's what he's saying. Hey, look, enjoy your life. Work hard. Live wise. And put a smile on your face. Do you want to enjoy your life? If you work hard and if you live wise and if you smile, the chances are your life will be better rather than worse. But the preacher knows something that you also know. That life will come to an end. That eternity is just right around the corner. But instead of saying life is uncertain and be afraid, he's saying life is uncertain. So go ahead and embrace it. Your life is brief. Enjoy it. And look what it says in verse seven. Truly, the light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. I think what he's talking about is that every once in a while, even in those dark, lonely moments, the best thing that you can do is go outside and let the sun shine on your face. The oldest living survivor of World War One died a few days ago. His name escapes me. 
but his age doesn't. He was 110 years old. He lied about his age when he joined the army. He went to one place and told the truth and they wouldn't let him. He went to another place and claimed that he was 18 and they didn't believe him and said you had to be 21. He went to another place and said that he was 21 and the inducting officer said, I don't believe you. Show me your birth certificate. And he goes, I was born in Missouri. And when I was born, they didn't have birth certificates. We just had the old family Bible. You don't want me to bring the old family Bible down here, do you? And he let him join. And at the age of 16, he went to war and he went to Europe. And he was a driver. And he worked hard. And he had an interesting life and God spared his life in World War One, and he grew up and he had children and he had grandchildren. And in World War Two, in 1941, he was in the Philippines on a job and he was captured by the Japanese. And he spent three years in a prisoner of war camp. And he was released. And when he grew older and older and older at about the age of a hundred and five, he was told that he was the last living survivor of World War One. And you know what he said? Well, I guess it had to go to someone and it went to me. The day that he died. His daughter took him out on the porch and he just stared into the sun because the light was so sweet. In verse 8, it says, but if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. If you live long enough, you'll have days filled with light. And you'll have days filled with darkness. You'll have days filled with laughter and you'll have days filled with tears. Dr. Benjamin Mays wrote a little a poem that you would do well to memorize if you get a chance. It's called Life is Just a Minute. There's this crazy new show on TV called Win It in a Minute. And you have 60 seconds. And it reminded me of this poem. Life is just a minute. He said, life is just a minute. Only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon you. Can't refuse it. Didn't seek it. Didn't choose it. But it's up to you to use it. You must suffer if you lose it. Give an account if you abuse it. Just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. I often think he must have got this from Ecclesiastes. It goes by so quickly. It happens so suddenly. You're a mom. You're a dad. You're a grandma. You're a grandpa. And so the preacher says in verse 9, Rejoice, O young men, in your youth. 
and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Here's what the preacher's saying. You're young. Do you want to know the path of having a good life? Start while you're young. Solomon encourages the reader, enjoy your youth. There are wholesome pleasures to being young. Give the Lord his proper place. Honor the Lord. Honor him with your life and honor him with your heart. There was a young girl who said, you know what? I'm going to wait till I'm old and then I'm going to serve the Lord. And someone overheard her. And sent her some flowers. A dozen roses. They were 10 days old. And when the roses started to shrink and to shrivel, it was delivered to her. And she said, who in the world would send me old, used, shriveled roses? And she saw the name. And when she saw the lady later on, she said, thank you for the roses. Well, did you enjoy them? Well, no, they were 10 days old and they were, get, they were getting ready to be thrown out. She goes, I know. I, I heard you talking to a friend how you didn't want to serve the Lord, how you were going to wait till you're old. When the fragrance is gone and the beauty is gone, that's the best time to serve the Lord. Right. And she learned a lesson. How wicked and how wrong her attitude had been. The best time to serve the Lord is when you're young and when you have it all in front of you. That's the point that it's being made. It's not a sin to be young. But it's almost impossible to avoid sinning while you're young. And so in verse 10, it says, therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. And remember here, flesh means everything that you are apart apart from God and Christ for childhood and youth are vanity. God designed you for friendship and fellowship so long as you're alienated from God and you're under the shadow of condemnation. You're going to experience sorrow. But the writer says, therefore, remove sorrow from your heart. Put away evil from your flesh. It was Augustine who said, you made us for yourself so that we shall never find rest until we find our rest in you. So what does this mean? You won't know and will not be able to remove sorrow from your heart. The emptiness and the loneliness and the darkness can't just simply be wished away or pretended away, put away evil from your flesh. I think that what here he means is avoid physical distress, put away the evil from your flesh doesn't simply mean avoid youthful lusts, although we're to do that according to the New Testament. But here, I think that what the writer, what the preacher is saying, while you're young, avoid unnecessary pain and hardship. This, by the way, the word evil is the same word translated evil in Isaiah 45, verse 7. You're probably somewhat familiar with the verse where it says, the Lord says, I will make peace and create evil. Ra'ah. Here, it doesn't mean moral 
evil or wickedness, but rather physical or material calamity. The idea being hardship and suffering. And in Isaiah, I think it's the consequence of sin. And so what he's basically saying is enjoy your life, enjoy your youth, enjoy your vigor, enjoy your strength. Don't go out of your way to abuse your body. I wish I would have done that when I was young. People warned me, you're going to be old one day and you're going to regret that. Oh, yeah, right. And sure enough, at the age of tender age of 19, with no cartilage in my left knee. You begin to understand something that cartilage with no cartilage in your knee at 19. You also have no cartilage in your knee at 29 and 39 and 49. And guess what? At about 59, you miss that cartilage. I went to the doctor and the doctor says, you don't have any cartilage in that knee. Thanks. You don't have any cartilage in that shoulder. Thanks. You're going to have to replace that knee and you're going to have to replace that shoulder. I go, you mean it's not under warranty anymore? When will I have to replace my hip? And when will I have to replace my knee? And when will I have to replace my shoulder? He said, when you can't stand the pain anymore. Be careful. If you abuse your body when you're young, you might have to pay for it for the rest of your life. So what does the preacher mean when he says, for childhood and youth are vanity? Is he saying it's a waste of time to be a child? Is he saying children should be seen and not heard? No, I think what the preacher means is this. Youth, freshness, vigor. Won't last forever. It won't last long. We have a saying, even in our own culture. You're only young once. Or as Mark Twain used to say, why is youth wasted on the young? That's, I think, what the preacher has in mind here. And so that's the point that I think that he's making. You're only young once. He's not saying... Don't enjoy your youth, but what he's saying is celebrate it and look at chapter 12, verse 1. And I'm going to read the chapter. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For a man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. We're going to pause for just a moment. In verse one, where it says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Before the difficult days come, here's the idea. 
If ever there was a time to serve the Lord, it's when you're young. If ever there was a time to begin the discipline of loving, serving, obeying, heeding, responding to the Lord, it's when you're young. Charles Spurgeon used to come home and say, six people were saved today. Um, three young people, he says, because it's like they have twice the life. And when an old person would get saved, he would only count them as half a person <laughs> because half of their life was gone. I got saved when I was 16 years old. Three weeks later, I turned 17. At 16 in high school, I was voted most likely to go to hell. Guess what? When you get saved young, you have an opportunity to turn your life in a different direction, a direction of obedience and submission to God. And so when he says before the difficult days come, because the truth is the difficult days are much easier to bear when you have a right relationship with God in Christ. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. It's his way of saying the reality is you're going to get older. He says, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain. It's a poetic way of saying while you're still young enough to enjoy your life. And in verse three, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim. Here's my question to you. Do you understand what you're reading? Some of you are going, no. I have no idea what that means. Let me help you. The preacher is using poetic language. He's using figurative language. You know what he's describing? The process of growing old. In other words, he's talking about the signs of old age. The keepers of the house in, in this particular instance, is a, it's a Hebraic expression. It means the arms that shake. The keepers of the house are your arms. And when you're young, your arms are strong. But as you get older, your arms begin to tremble. That's the point. The strong men are the legs that are bowed. The strong men are the things that support you in your posture. The grinders, that's what those are. Yeah, that's your teeth. Few in number. What happens when you get old? Remember, they didn't have dental health care in 1000 B.C. In, in Israel. Maybe you've been around the world and... You see people who don't have access to dental care or dentures and the teeth begin to come out one by one by one. by. it's just sort of like aging in reverse. Remember when babies, they start to sprout their teeth and the older you get, you start to lose those teeth. That's what what's talking about. 
It's few in number because with the age comes the loss of teeth. Those that look out the windows, those are your eyes, which are dimmed with the passing of years. And the doors are the ears, which can barely hear the grinding of the grain that's taking place. Remember, they don't have King Supers. They don't have Albertsons or Safeway. Each and every day, they would gather the grain and they would gather the wheat. And a daily thing that you would hear on a daily basis was the sound of the mortar and the pestle as you grind the grain in order to make the bread. And so that's funny in light of chapter, verse 4, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird. What do you think that that means? When one rises up at the sound of a bird. Guess what? The older you get, sometimes things wake you in the night. What was that? You know, the older you get, you start to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the morning. And you're sitting there and your eyes are wide open and you're going, this is not good. And what makes matters worse? And all the daughters of music are brought low. What do you suppose that means? It is hearing because they don't have iPods. They don't have stereo systems. They don't have radio stations. Guess what? The daughters of music are all of the people who are laughing and singing. And guess what? This is the preacher's way of saying, what's that? Yeah. Could you turn up the sound? That's what he's saying. And he says, and the terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms in verse five, the grasshopper is a burden. Desire fails for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go down to the streets again. It's his way of saying. Also, they are afraid of heights. Question, are the elderly afraid of heights? Yes. Why? Because they can slip and fall. Wobbly legs make heights and climbing difficult. The elderly are apprehensive about walking along a path because when you're young, you see a hole, you see a ditch, you see um, obstacles, and you can avoid those obstacles. But the older you get, you have to watch each and every step. The step becomes more difficult. You can't avoid all of the rocks and the holes. It's like trying to cross a brook or a stream that's slippery when it's wet. And I suspect that when the almond tree blossoms, again, it's a poetic way of saying when the tree turns silver. You see, in Solomon's day, as rich as he was and as wise as he was, there were ancient cultures that could dye your hair. But most people didn't dye their hair. This is thousands of years before Lady Clairol. And so I think that that's what it's talking about. Silver locks, gray hair, which adorn the senior saint or the senora saint. And the grasshopper is a burden. What do you think that means? Again, the grasshopper is a hesitant, dragging gait when it walks. 
And I think it, it was used to illustrate the shuffling and the stooped carriage of the elderly as they try to move along. And so, again, it becomes a type and a picture of, of, of the process of growing older. Desire shall fail. It doesn't mean that it is completely eliminated, but it points to the fact that the physical appetites become less and less and less and less until they grow cold because death is coming. And the elderly person will eventually go to the long home, the eternal state. And so in verse five, for the man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Here's the idea. The elderly person dies. The mourners mourn with a loud lamentation. And so that's why he repeats it in verse six. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Some have have suggested that these are descriptions, perhaps metaphors for the body. Some have suggested that the golden Bowl is your head and the silver cord is your spinal column, the pitcher, blood vessels, the fountain, the right ventricle of the heart, the cistern, the left ventricle of the heart, the wheel, the aorta of the heart. Maybe remember your creator before the silver cord is loose. Others have suggested that that it was the ancient people's belief that the thing that kept your body and your soul together, that there was a metaphysical, a supernatural cord that linked the body and the spirit together, and that when that cord was loosed, so were you. What does it really mean? I don't know. But whatever else it means, it means that life is precious, and that life is short. And that death is inevitable when the cord is broken, when the bowl is smashed. Death cuts off life. A fragile pitcher is delicate and it has to be handled with care. And so human beings are fragile. And they can die for what seems like the most minor problem. And as the wheel was used to lower vessels into a deep cistern, it's a it's a mechanical device. It can wear out. It can deteriorate. It can finally simply not work anymore. Yes, we may be wrinkled. But we're not ruined. You know what it says in Psalm 92, verse 14? The righteous will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and every green. Does that mean when you get older that you're useless? Of course, it can't mean that. In other words, when the psalmist says the righteous will still yield fruit in old age, how is that? Because no matter how old you are, The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. No matter how old you are, you can pray for your family and your friends. No matter how old you are, God will use your experiences and your gifts and your prayers to make a difference. In verse 7, it says, then the dust 
will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's where that expression comes from. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Every human being has two makeups, a physical makeup and a spiritual makeup. We are a part of the planet Earth and we are composed of the constituent elements of this planet. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear the spirit will return to God who gave it. Each and every human being has been made by God and created by God in the image of God with a spirit that will last forever. Somewhere. Don't forget that. In verse eight. It says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Empty. Meaningless. Void. In verse 9, he goes through a series of statements in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. Your life is Mysterious. So examine it. Look what he says. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. We know from history that Solomon wrote literally hundreds, even thousands of proverbs. And he wrote hundreds of songs in the ancient world. Songs and proverbs were a kind of a compilation. It was the the ancient way of having a reservoir of information, of wisdom and knowledge. It was the encyclopedic information of observation and application. So the preacher was wise. He taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Most of the 31 Proverbs in your book of Proverbs was written by this preacher. By the way, do you want to be wise? Take the time each and every morning to the book of Proverbs. Open it up to the day that you happen to be on. If it's March 2nd, go to Proverbs chapter 2. March 3rd, Proverbs chapter 3. Proverb a day. Keeps ignorance away. In verse 10, he says, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright words of truth. In other words, he's not trying. He's not trying to create a mechanism to fool you. Or. To discourage you. Or to point you in the wrong direction. He's looking for acceptable words. And what was written was upright words of truth. He says, as even though you may not like it, I'm going to tell you what you need to know instead of what you want to know. And in verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails. The words of the wise are like goads. Remember, you would take a long stick and you would use it to beat cattle or the donkey in order to get it to go in the right direction. And so the words of the wise are like goads. The idea being that the wisdom is supposed to motivate you so that you'll cease going in the wrong direction and you'll start going in the right direction. That's the point. And the words of scholars are like well-driven 
nails. Why? Because they're firm and they're certain. They've been tried and tested and found secure. When you want something to be secure, you nail it shut in the ancient world. And that's the idea. Now, again, we live in a world where we know that we can take the nail out. But, but the point that the preacher is making is that the wise are to motivate us. And the words of the scholars are to keep us firm Given by one shepherd in this particular instance, the word shepherd can mean overseer. It's the idea of an architect who builds, if you will, um, a building and everyone takes instructions from the architect. They're all on the same page, going in the same direction in order to accomplish the same goal. And so in verse 12, it says, and further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making of many books, there is no end. And much study is wearisome to the flesh. There's only one thing I like more than books. Free books. I love books. I love books that you shouldn't probably love. In the sense that, what is this? Every single book to me offers information. And when you grow up in a world where you're starved for information, books become your friends. I grew up in the Mojave Desert and there was no library. We had a, what you call a bookmobile and the bookmobile would come to town and they would let you check out five books every week. And I was there like clockwork. I was there like a drug addict. If it had print, I wanted it in my life. The problem, of course, is that books can say anything about anything. And some can be accurate and some can be less than accurate. And the preacher says, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. It's true. Have you ever found a book because you liked it better than sleeping pills? I'm just going to look at this book because... All you have to do is open it and start reading it and it puts you to sleep. It's like a drug. There comes a point when knowing one more thing doesn't seem to matter. But he encourages us to look and to seek and to understand and look what it says in verse 13. Your life is obedience to God, so express it. Look what it says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. I'm going to suggest to you that the preacher's in a study. He's come to the end of the conclusion. By the way, when a preacher says, in conclusion, what does that mean? It means you still got a little ways to go. But I'm going to suggest something to you. He isn't simply thinking about the end of his book. He isn't even simply thinking about the end of a king's life. He's thinking about the beginning of life and wisdom. Solomon is, after all, his father's son. 
And he looks back on his life and God's gift. You remember the young Solomon? He is young and he is impressionable, but he wants to do what's right. He wants to govern the people. He he builds the temple and dedicates the temple. And the Lord says, ask me anything. Do you want wealth? Do you want power? Do you want the ability to defeat your enemies? Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he says, I want wisdom to govern your people. And because his request pleased God, because it wasn't riches, it wasn't long life, it wasn't the death of his enemies. He built a kingdom to a pinnacle, never to be exceeded. He built the greatest temple. He possessed the greatest jewels. He led a great nation and still Still, the most important treasure eludes him. What is my life? What is the meaning of my life? What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? And why am I here now? Heaven still eludes him. He is hungry for something eternal. He's amassed a great library. He has the advantage of hearing the learning from everyone in the world. He has plumbed the treasures of foreign lands. And it amounts to nothing. But Solomon repeats what his father taught him. Do you understand what Solomon is saying? This isn't just simply what his father taught him. This is what Abraham taught Isaac and Isaac taught Jacob and Jacob taught Joseph and and instructed the children of Israel. Joseph imparted it the best that he could. Moses gave the law. And in one brief moment, in one brief statement, Solomon summarizes the whole thing. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is man's all. All indeed. There are no riches. There is no power. There is no glory. There is no pleasure. If you don't have this one thing. Imagine you found a map that promised you heaven. Imagine you found a map that promised heaven's treasure right here on the earth. Solomon has already written that eternity is in your heart. So how do you get to this place? Where does the journey begin? He says, fear God. That's the place of embarkation. Each journey begins with a point of departure. He says, keep the commandments. That's the path. Travel on the path. It's the narrow way that leads to the eternal city. Can you imagine the wisest, the wealthiest, the most powerful man in the world? He picks up his tablet. He picks up his pen, his stylus. In the Hebrew language, he writes the most simple words for this is man's all. In the Hebrew, it says this is all. It could even be translated This isn't just for me. This isn't just for you. This is for all people. This is for the young and the old, for black and for white and for rich and for poor, for people who are living on the east or the west, for people who are very, very old or people who are very, very young. This may mean this is for everyone. Reverence and obedience is for everyone. 
What does that mean, by the way? What does it mean to fear God? I'm going to suggest to you that it must mean in part to be struck with awe at God's holiness, at his holy presence, at his pure and perfect presence. It means to stand always in forever in breathless exaltation of who he is and what he has done and how infinitely vast and how great his greatness overshadows our brief and vaporous existence. This is Solomon's way of saying you should allow the reality of who God is to take your breath away. I got to tell you something. Fearing God, if we take it even at the smallest level, if we if we take the most minuscule meaning of what it means to fear God. It has to mean take God seriously. It can't mean that he's a joke. So what does it mean to keep his commandments? I'm going to suggest it means. Find out what he wants done. And do it. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It's asking and answering the question. What is it that you want? And then allow him to speak. And he has spoken, by the way. Paul wrote about it in the New Testament when he said he wants everyone everywhere to turn from their sin and their unbelief. He wants everyone everywhere to turn from their sin and their unbelief and to embrace Jesus Christ as the living Lord and Savior of life. This is the work of God to believe on him whom he has sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. What does God want? He wants to know you and he wants to love you. He wants you to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. And if that's what it means to keep his commandment, to find out what he wants and then be willing to do it, that means that no matter how much the cost, no matter how much the sacrifice, no matter how much the hardship or the pain or the limitations, it's going to be worth it. Because if you abandon your fear and replace it with faith, if you jettison ignorance and replace it with wisdom, If you replace the terror of not knowing the meaning of your life and the purpose of your life and the significance of your life with a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then nothing else matters. Everything else is empty. Everything else is heartache. Everything else is wandering in a world and being blind No wonder fearing God and obeying God becomes the most important thing. Why? Look at verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. God will bring every work into judgment. He won't leave anything out. The preacher's conclusion becomes our introduction. Introduction. 
Everything that we say and everything that we do, everything that we have done, everything that we are doing, everything that we will do is going to face the scrutiny of the true and the living God. And that should terrify almost all of you. Unless, of course, there's a way to be forgiven. To be exonerated. And that is the gospel. Jesus is willing to love you and to forgive you. You need to understand something. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by someone who believed in the God of the Bible. And he writes sometimes in painful detail about all of the empty and all of the worthless and all of the dead in streets devised by the devil on how to avoid God. How can we solve life's deepest problems apart from God? The preacher says we can't. I would be so bold as to tell you. He's I would even say he tried and failed. He was exposed to all of the blind alleys of fame and fortune and wine and women and material prosperity and intellectual fulfillment and human accomplishment and human philosophy. But the real God revealed himself in an understandable way to a young king. And he remembered. He remembered what his father told him. David Jeremiah concludes his commentary on this book with a prayer. I'd like to repeat it to you. He prays, Lord, I realize now that my whole life has been a search for heaven on earth. I long to know and to taste and to feel the truth that is true, the love that is genuine the master who will never let me down. You died for me so many years ago on a painful cross. And I realize now that you are the payment for all of my sins, each and every one of them. How I long to be relieved of that burden. Just as you rose from the dead, conquering death forever, I choose right now to accept eternal life, to know that death will have no hold on me, and I will pursue you down that path toward the eternal city with every breath that I breathe for the rest of my life until the day that I meet you face to face. If that's your prayer. If that's your hope, if that's your heart, there's love available for you and there's forgiveness available for you and there's eternal life available for you. There's the ability to begin to understand and appreciate who God is and the ability to hear what he has to say so that he can communicate to you in no uncertain terms what his desire is. His desire more than anything else is friendship and fellowship and companionship. We're going to have communion in just a few minutes. I'm going to encourage you to just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, even as David Jeremiah prayed, Lord, that 
we realize that our whole life has been a search for heaven on earth. That, Lord, we've always wanted to know what our life meant. The meaning and purpose of our life. It was never meant to be lived in emptiness and loneliness and heartache and wickedness. Lord, we were never meant to live our lives in that constant state of threat and death. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is here and their heart is broken and empty. Lord, I pray that you would heal it and fill it. For the heart that is guilty, Lord, I pray that you'd forgive it. And for the heart. For the heart that just is so numbed by constant trauma and constant pain. Lord, I pray that you'd give them a heart of flesh. Lord, I pray that they would begin to feel your presence, sense your love, appreciate your commitment. Lord, I pray that they would turn from unbelief and sin and begin to walk in a way of obedience and submission and humility. And for the young person who is tempted to spend their youth on wickedness, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them for the task at hand and that they would live lives honoring and pleasing to you. And for the person who's, well, let's just say mature. <laughs> Lord, we pray that we would find ways to honor you with the gifts and callings that you've placed in our life. That wrinkled does not mean ruined. We want to honor you and serve you and love you and be available to you. And Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts as we declare our love and our loyalty to Jesus once again. In Jesus' name, amen.